Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. Jamie Harrison generated excitement, if not a win, in his November 2020 U.S. Senate race against Lindsey Graham. His campaign shattered fundraising records and put a scare into the South Carolina Republican incumbent. And it just may have been a preview of the rise of competitive contests for Democrats in the solidly red South, borne out in narrow wins for President Joe Biden and Senators Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff in Georgia. As chairman of the Democratic National Committee, Harrison has his work cut out for him. The Democratic Party has to defend its slim House and Senate majorities in 2022, knowing that midterms have not historically been kind to the party occupying the White House. As chair, Harrison has to organize and fundraise, promote the party's platform, and keep the party in the position to implement it, now and in the long term. And he has to do it in this most partisan of times. Chairman Harrison has said he wants to cultivate the Democratic Party's next generation of leaders as he takes his place as one of the most prominent members of that group. A big job. And Jamie Harrison is joining Equal Time to talk about it and so much more. Welcome to Equal Time, Chairman Harrison. Race, racism, and the South. We have your former opponent, Senator Lindsey Graham, insisting that the election of a President Obama and a Vice President Kamala Harris proves that systemic racism does not exist. So what is your response to that as an American and as a Black man from the South? Well, you know, I, I also remember, uh, I'm old enough to remember when Lindsey Graham's campaign darkened my skin in a campaign ad. I, I also remember when Lindsey Graham said that if you're a black man or a, a black person or an immigrant, uh, you can go anywhere in the state as long as you're conservative. Uh, I also remember when he went campaigning for a woman who said that she wanted to be on the front row of a lynching and, and use that as a joke. Uh, you know, uh, the issues of race in these in this country are pervasive. Uh, there are issues in which uh, if you are a person of color that you can't run away from, you can't change, you, you know, you, you, you still have to deal with it on a day to day basis. And there's an insensitivity that Lindsey Graham has on these issues of race that is really, really disturbing, particularly for a man who represents a state where almost uh, a third of the people are uh, folks of color. And so, um, you know, there's a long, America has come a long way. We still got a long way to go as long as we got folks like Lindsey Graham, who's uh, in the U.S. Senate and taking that type of idea, uh, those type of ideas and using that in order to uh, develop policy that impacts all of us. Well, you know, uh, during your extremely close Senate race, uh, he also campaigned on maintaining quote, our way of life, unquote. And it seemed to me, obviously, I'm a Black woman myself, we, we know that those appeals are barely coded. So when it comes to race, uh, is the New South the same as the Old South? And what about the rest of the country? Uh, you know, I don't think the New South is the same as the Old South. I think part of what you are seeing are the relics of the Old South uh, standing up because they see that things in the nature of the South is starting to change. Uh, that the demographics in the South are starting to change. And as a result, they're going to fight to cling and hold on to uh, the old way of how we do things. Um, but, you know, change is going to happen and change is already happening. You look at Georgia. Uh, for the first time in Georgia's history, they are represented in the U.S. Senate by a black man and a Jewish man. Think about that. 
Think about the, the freedom rise that John Lewis participated in and that African-Americans and Jewish Americans participated in to, to bring uh, equality to the South, to bring civil rights to the South, uh, how they were beaten and bruised on that. And now Georgia has uh, an African-American and a Jewish American who are rep representing her. So the change is coming, uh, regardless of whether people want to stand in the doors to try to stop it or not. It's coming. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that's why I'm excited. I'm excited because uh, those changes are so necessary. This is a great uh, part of the, the country with amazing and good people. It just deserves much better leadership than we currently have right now. Um, and so uh, in my role at the DNC, I'm going to try to make sure that we push that change uh, to make it happen as quickly as we possibly can have it to happen. Well, you're a part of that new generation of leaders because I'm based in Charlotte, North Carolina, and so I'm not that far from your home state. Uh, I had a front row seat and saw a lot of those ads, too, for your own campaign for senator. Uh, and there were a lot of ads from former Graham supporters who switched to Jamie Harrison. So I just want to ask you what it was like to be the center of the political universe for a while and also the receptacle for so many folks' uh, hopes and dreams uh, for change. Well, well, Mary, I can tell you for a poor kid, a round-headed boy who grew up in Orangeburg, South Carolina, uh, who grew up to a teen mom whose grandparents had a fourth grade and an eighth grade education. You know, I lived my American dream. I really have. Uh, because I got the opportunity to provide hope to people who hadn't had hope in a very, very long time. Uh, I can't tell you, you know, I can still go to the grocery store. I went to Costco the other day and I saw this woman and her kids looking at me and I walked down the aisle and they continued to look at me. And then finally I went to the register and she came up to me and she said, are you Jamie Harrison? I had on my mask, but she said, are you, are you Jamie Harrison? I said, yes, I am. And she went back to her kids. She said, that's him. That's him. And they all came over to me and, and one little kid said, I'm Jamie Harrison and I approve this message. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of ads. There were, well, you know, you mentioned Georgia and did Georgia and really the closeness of your race and you saw so many whites uh, you know, support you in your campaign. Is that a preview of what is happening in the South? Do you think that that can be replicated for your party in other Southern states? I, I do. I fervently believe that. I mean, you look at what Raphael Warnock was able to do. You look at what Stacey Abrams, how she came so close before. And what we are going to see this election cycle uh, in, in the South, uh, the emergence of Black candidates running for statewide office like we have never seen before. And I'm happy to have been a part of that. I think many other folks saw what we were able to do here in South Carolina and saw it as an inspiration that they could also do something very similar. And so, yes, we may not have uh, crossed the finish line first, but we put 1.1 million cracks in the ceiling here in South Carolina to let folks know. And that's the largest amount that any Democrat, white, black or whatever, has ever gotten in South Carolina history. And we even got more votes than Barack Obama got a few years ago here in South Carolina. So I'm proud of that. I'm proud of what we are able to accomplish. And now that sets the foundation and the floor for uh, the continue adding on to that foundation. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm going to do all that I can to support these candidates as they, as they come up uh, to make sure that they can live their dreams. Well, you talked a little bit about that next election cycle and your job as chair of the uh, DNC. Well, many Republicans are salivating over the chance uh, they see that they want to retake the House and the Senate in 2022. We see the census numbers came out this week that really favors some of those Republican strongholds uh, in Texas, uh, Florida with the new seats. Um, and also, we know that the midterms are always uh, tough for the party that's occupying the White House. So can you give me a hint on some of your plans uh, for the midterms coming up and for not only succeeding, but strengthening the, the um, majorities? Yeah. Well, Mary, one of the things I hope people uh, don't read in too much into these census changes is this. Yes, uh, some of the southern states have added uh, additional congressional seats. But the question is, who are these new people that are moving into these southern states? Are they Republican? I would conjecture that they're not. Uh, you take a look at Georgia and the growth in Georgia, the part of the growth in Georgia, most of the growth in Georgia has been in Atlanta. And most of those folks who are coming into Georgia and registering in Georgia are voting Democratic. And so what we're seeing is the reverse migration that has taken place. You know, our great grandmothers and great great grandmothers and great great grandfathers who went up to the industrial Midwest and to the Northeast looking and trying to escape uh, Southern racism. Their great great grandkids are now coming back down South looking for opportunity. Uh, and they're changing the politics of the communities that they're coming in. That's why South Carolina is changing. That's why Georgia and North Carolina is changing. And so, you know, yes, the Republicans may be happy for the short term because they believe that now there are more people moving into these states. But the question is, are these states being maintained at the same level? And my, and my uh, analysis, that is not the case. And so, um, you know, what we are going to do is compete everywhere. The Democratic Party, the days of ceding the South to the Republicans and not fighting in the South, those days are over under my chairmanship. We are going to focus on all of our states. Wherever there are Democrats, the DNC is going to be there. And so that's in all of our states, in our territories, and that's with Democrats abroad. Uh, so we'll be investing in our state parties. We'll be organizing on the ground earlier. We'll be out, uh, reaching out to our constituencies in a much more intensive and localized fashion. And so I'm, uh, you know, I'm hopeful uh, about what the midterms have. Mm -hmm. Will you be recruiting uh, some of this new generation you've talked about of leaders, recruiting folks that you think can compete? We, we are looking at how we create a much more diverse uh, and energetic pipeline of, of talent uh, across the country. I, I've talked to a number of folks who are thinking about statewide office. You know, Charles Booker, who's thinking about it again uh, in Kentucky and has uh, launched an exploratory. Uh, there, there's so many uh, tremendous, uh, so much talent that we have in these regions that we just need to let them know that they're going to have some so, so, some support when they toss in their hats. Uh, and that's what I'm looking at right now is uh, how we create that pipeline, but how we are much more supportive of that talent once they get into the race. Well, I, th I think that some Republicans are looking at the same numbers. So that's why we see some of these voting bills around the country. Now, you've agreed with the president on the issue of voting rights, characterizing that Georgia 
Big Bill and others like it as Jim Crow 2.0. So uh, are you looking at maybe the House to pass their federal voting bills as the answer? We're talking about the filibuster. What's your strategy? Yeah, our strategy is to fight against these efforts from state houses to courthouses to the houses of Congress. Um, you know, H.R. 1 and H.R. 4 are so, the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act are so, so important and crucial to pushing back against these efforts to suppress the, the right to vote. You know, I often tell the story about how voting for me is such a personal thing. Uh, you know, growing up here in South Carolina, one of the traditions I had with my grandfather was that we would go and vote together. Uh, he passed away in November, November 18, 2004. And that same year, I graduated from law school. I came back to South Carolina uh, to help Inez run for the U.S. Senate. Uh, and my grandfather passed away that, that later on that November. But early in, in that season, uh, he and I went to vote. And I remember sitting out on the porch with him afterwards. And he said to me, he said, you know, Jamie, you know, in this state, I was not always considered a whole man. He said, in this state, I was not always allowed to vote like we did today. And he said, I'm going to tell you something. Never let anybody tell you that you don't matter. Never let anybody tell you that you don't count. What these bills are doing is telling a whole demographics of, of folks that they don't matter and that they don't count. And Mary, we've been down this road before. We have heard this song before and we're not going back. We're not going back to the old Jim Crow days. I can tell you, as a father of two boys, I'm not letting my sons grow up in a world that my grandfather grew up in. I'm going to do everything in my power. Every drop of blood that flows through my veins, every breath that I breathe will be dedicated to pushing back and fighting a bank, a back against these efforts to take away our most uh, sacred right as Americans. Yeah, I have to say, you know, I, I can relate to you in a lot of ways. My mom in Maryland was an elections worker. She's one of those folks that would go to the polls and make uh, sure there was a Democrat and Republican there. And it was a sacred uh, in, in our home as well. In fact, she was a Republican, a, a Lincoln Republican, the party of Ed Brooke and Charles Mack Mathias in Maryland and those folks. I, I tell people about that. They were like, really? I was like, oh, no, it was. Uh, so when you talk about, you know, that's why the attacks on the poll workers I took very personally this year. Um, anyway, yeah. But um, I want to ask you, what are some of your other issues that are your priorities uh, now? Well, you know, we are, again, we are looking at adopting a 50, uh, 57 states and territory strategy. Uh, we are also looking at um, what we can do in terms of opening up the pipeline for young talent and more diverse talent. Um, we are looking at how we start organizing earlier uh, in a much, much more intensive fashion. Um, we are also uh, going to evaluate where we go in terms of the presidential primary se uh, season, and we're evaluating that process. So, you know, there's so much that we have going on, but we're excited, most importantly, about uh, promoting this agenda from President Joe Biden. Uh, you know, when you think about it, in 100 days, he's had one of the most transformational 100 days that we have seen in recent history. Uh, he passed the American Rescue Plan, which put money in pockets and people in jobs that created a million jobs over the course of three months, vaccines and arms. We, you know, almost 50 percent of Americans are now adults in America are vaccinated. Think about that. 
Think about where we were in January, on January 20th of this year and where we are now. And that's thanks to the leadership of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and Democrats in the House and the Senate. Yeah. Um, well, looking at the headlines now and being in North Carolina, we have a big one now in Elizabeth City uh, and the shooting uh, of, of Andrew Brown Jr. Would police reform be something that at, at's at the top of the list of something that you will be an issue that you will be looking at and emphasizing as part of the Democratic agenda? It, it, it is a huge issue for us and not even as in the Democratic Party, but as a nation. We have uh, communities that are crying out in chronic pain. This is a historical pain that has been passed on from generation to generation. Uh, and we need to come up with a solution to it. And I don't want a Democratic solution or Republican solution. I want a solution that helps to solve and address this problem for so many communities. That, you know, police are there to protect and serve. Well, we all need to have trust that that's exactly what they're going to do. You know, I have folks in my family that come from law enforcement. My grandfather, uh, uh, my uh, grandfather Ron, was in the Detroit Police Department for almost forty years, right? And so we understand the, the hardships, the trials and tribulations of coming from those communities and, and the sacrifices that law enforcement uh, does. But at the same time, we also know the fears uh, that some in the law enforcement community have put into uh, black and brown folks over the years. That has to stop. It has to stop. And so, uh, you know, we got folks like Karen Bass and Cory Booker that are trying to work to pull together the legislation in Congress to take the steps that are necessary to end these, uh, these, these issues and the practices of abusing power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you have two sons. I have one. Uh, so that is a big issue. Um, but you said you wanted to have uh, bipartisan. This is an American issue. And that's a very uh, great goal. But considering that we had that January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, um, a lot of the rhetoric coming out, including a flirtation with an America First caucus, the fact that it seems like there can't even be an agreement on a commission to study exactly what went on. It seems the country is so divided on issues of race and so many issues. How can we move forward together? Well, you know, it's very, very sad to see these divisions um, because, again, there's a lot of people that are in extreme pain right now. Uh, I mean, uh, just watching the... the Chauvin, uh, the Derek Chauvin trial, uh, and the anxiety that I had that day when the, the, the verdict was going to come out. And why should we have anxiety? When we saw with our own eyes, this black man lose his life because he was pinned down for over nine minutes. We saw it with our own eyes. So why should there have been any question about what was going to happen? But there was. Uh, and there was a lot of anxiety. There was a lot of frustration. Uh, there was a lot of nervousness uh, dealing with that. Uh, you know, in the end of the day, uh, this is the reality that so many folks are living. And you would hope that if you are a public servant, somebody who is there to serve the people, all of the people, not just a select few, but all of them, then that you would want to do what's in the best interest of the folks. But this is a saying my grandfather used to say. He said, Jamie, you know, one of the things you have to learn in life is sometimes a train is just going to go. And you got three options. You can either get on the train, you can stand on the sidelines and wave to the train, or you can stand in front of the train. But know the reality is the train is going to go. 
Uh, and so I hope folks understand that we are going to address this issue. And you can either join our efforts to join uh, to address these issues. You can sit on the sidelines and just watch, or you can stand in front of it. But this train is going to go because it has to. Uh, we can't sit back and not allow and not do all that we possibly can in order to address this issue for so many people. Thank you so much for your time. You take care. Thank you so much. Take care now. So what's keeping me up at night? I'll admit that some of the language in the mission statement of a Congressional America First Caucus was simply ridiculous, but I wasn't laughing. Even after organizers such as Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene pulled back after broad criticism. But the ideas are not going anywhere. When plans for a 9-11 style commission to study the January 6th insurrection stall because Republican leaders equate rioters looking to overthrow democracy with Black Lives Matter protesters asking law enforcement to protect and serve all Americans, well, the country has a dangerous problem. I write about it in my roll call column this week. Check it out and let me know what's on your mind by tweeting me at mcurtisnc3. Thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.